If you would turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 17, <coughs> there are two characters in this story. It happened right before Elijah went up to Mount Carmel for the sacrifice that we talked about last Sunday. You remember the scene of the, of the uh, professional wrestling match, right? If you weren't here last Sunday, you're wondering, what in the world is he preaching? You'll just have to go on YouTube and find the service or go to our website. It was quite the professional wrestling match scene. Two characters in this story. <clears throat> There's Elijah. He was a prophet who was standing up against Ahab, who the scripture uh, described as the worst king ever. Now, we've had some bad presidents. Every country has a bad king or queen. Uh, how would you be known by God himself as the worst king in all of history for Israel? That was Ahab. So he was the leader of the country while Elijah was, was a prophet. <clears throat> and now Elijah was running for his life away from the worst king ever. Elijah does not know the great challenges <clears throat> that were ahead of him. And aren't you glad that none of us do? I think if we did, I would be just frozen knowing what is coming. And thankfully, I, I, one of my spiritual gifts is ignorance. And so I'm just ignorant of what is coming, <clears throat> and I'm just trusting God. But Elijah is the only prophet of God in Israel during this time. So uh, often we get kind of confused the difference between a, a prophet and a priest, right? And a prophet is not the same as a priest. They're two very different, very specific jobs. Let me explain to you a really good way, and I'd encourage you to write this at the flyleaf of your Bible because it'll come up often. So a prophet speaks to man on behalf of God, okay? A prophet speaks to man on behalf of God. A priest is opposite. A priest speaks to God on behalf of man, okay? So a prophet hears from God and speaks to man. A priest hears from man and speaks to God, generally speaking. I, I know you're probably going, but wait a minute. But basically, that's the way it is. Now, Elijah was the first. He was a prophet. So God was speaking to him and then he would proclaim some very hard truths to Israel. There's a second uh, character in the story. It was the widow. It was a widow with no food, no resources, no family except a son. And I say no family because during this time there was something called the, the Liverite or the Levi law. Uh, the Liverite law was that if if your husband dies, then it was required that because a woman had no way to protect herself or make money or, or anything, God saw fit to provide protection and a home for a widow. So 
it was the Liberite law, the Hebrew law, that that new uh, newfound uh, widow would be taken over by her first brother-in-law. He would then become the one to protect her. Well, the scripture says she has no one. So this tells us she had no brother-in-laws to take care of her. So she was out in the middle of the desert taking care of herself and her son. So she had no family, no resources, no one to help. She was at that very moment planning when her last breath would be. That's how bad it was. She wasn't going to take her life. It was that she knew she was starving and she had nothing to keep her alive. So in both the prophet and the widow, we will see both will step into the challenge of a lifetime. We will find in this story both are without resources they're without knowledge, they're without comrades, they're without protection. Both seem very helpless and hopeless. They are, without the intervention of God, all is lost for both the prophet and the widow. And both are about to learn something about God that would change the way they saw God for the rest of their lives. So in honor of reading God's word, would you please stand? And I'm going to read Ephesians, uh, sorry, <laughs> been preaching on Ephesians so long. 1 Kings chapter 17. Did you all like the Ephesians? I, I just really love spending three, four months on Ephesians. But now we're in the Old Testament, and guess what? I love the Old Testament. 1 Kings chapter 17, 7 through 16. Listen, my friends. What I'm about to read to you is God's holy word. Listen to God. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Elijah. Go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I have directed a widow there to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, Would you bring me a little wa water in a jar so that I may drink? As she was going to get it, he called, And bring me, please, a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. <clears throat> Go home and do as you have said. But first, make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me and then make for some for yourself and your son. For this is, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. 
the jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain in the land. So she went away and did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Remember, Elijah is going to be challenged beyond his greatest imagination in the next chapter. We talked about it last week, the challenge of Elijah against the 850 false prophets of Baal and the true God of Israel rained down fire on wet wood. You remember that story? Isn't God good to prepare us like he prepared Elijah? So let's answer this question as we look at this story. How does God prepare us for the God-sized challenges that are right around our corners. The first thing that I see in this story is that God is intricately involved in the outcome of your challenge. Did you notice that God gets very specific with Elijah? He doesn't say just go somewhere and do something. In these next several verses, he gets very specific about even the time. I want you to note that Elijah had what he had just come from. He had just announced a very serious drought to the bad king Ahab and God had been caring for him in a creek bed. He had fresh water from the brook and even ravens had brought him food and God said, okay, Elijah, you have learned that I can take care of you, so get up from the ravine and go at once. I want, you, I want to teach you some very specific lessons. So he was very specific about the time. Right now, I want you to start traveling. And then the next thing is that he tells him very specifically the place that he wants him to go to. In verse 9, God tells him to get up and travel 90 miles through the hot, dry desert to a place called Zarephath of Sidon, and then he is to stay in that little village. And then God tells him who to talk to very specifically. He says in verse 9, I have commanded a widow in that place to supply you with food. God will be extremely active in preparing you ahead of time for the challenge that is coming. This story shows us once again that he knows our future and is extremely concerned about bringing the outcome that he has determined. He loves Elijah so much, knowing what challenges were coming that he, is very, that he was very specific in preparing the lessons so that he would know how to get to that next challenge and be successful. 
God will first see if he can trust you with the small things first. We find this in verse 10. This is a lesson that the, that the woman certainly learned. Elijah asked for two very small things. He said, could you give me a cup of water and could you give me a piece of bread? Now normally this would have been a very minor request. But when you're helpless and you're in a drought and you're hopeless and, and you are without any help for the future, it was a ridiculous request from this visitor. It, it, it was as if I were to ask you, could you right now go get me $100,000 in cash in 400-year-old Spanish gold medallions? Come on, can you do that right now for me? And you're like, what? That's the context that this widow is in. His simple request was way beyond her ability at the time. But God knew that if she would just respond in faith to the small requests, he could then trust her with the big requests. And God does the exact same thing with us, doesn't he? He will place us in our spiritual journeys. He will, he will place in our spiritual journeys small questions, small challenges, small issues. Then he waits to see how we will respond to the small requests. Can I just ask you if, if our teenager forgets to change the oil in her piece of junk, are we then going to put her in charge of our brand new Cadillac? Probably not. Yet that's often what we expect of God. Not that you all would forget to change oil. I have stories. I won't tell them. Yet that's often what we expect God to do with us. If he can't trust us with the $100 that he gave us, how is he going to trust us with the $1,000? If we're not willing to help in a ministry, why would, he, why would we expect him to trust us to lead a ministry? If we are not willing to respond to his small requests, how can he trust us with his large blessings? God was checking to see if the widow was willing to step out with the minor challenge before he was going to give her a big challenge. And he'll do the same for us. Well, the third thing that I saw in this story was found in verse 12. God will challenge our logical planning. Did you notice that the widow had 
had everything all planned out for her soon coming demise. She measured how many cups of oil she had, how much flour was going to fit in her hand. She knew exactly how much oil and flour would make how much bread, and then she knew exactly how many sticks that she was going to need for the fire and exactly how many days it would take for them to starve and then finally die. It was all planned. She wasn't committing suicide. It was just the reality if this is what I have, this is how many days that me and my son have. She said, as surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I am gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and for my son that we may eat it and die. But don't we do the same as this widow? We tell God what we think we can handle instead of trusting him. We remind God just what is in our bank account. We, remind, we explain to God how much extra time we just don't have to do that ministry. We, we explain in detail the experience we don't have, the education we don't have. It's all logical. We are just stating the facts, ma'am. But God rarely asks us to do something that fits our own logic, doesn't he? He doesn't ask us to do something that fits our perfect budget. He certainly rarely asks us to do something that is perfectly scheduled with our calendar. And then we find in verse 13, God wants our first resources, not our leftover resources. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid, ma'am. Go home and do as you have said, but first make a small cake of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me. And then, and then, Make something for yourself and for your son. Now, can I tell you, that is a pretty big ask of Elijah. Give me your last food. Give me everything that you've got. Boy, that, that takes a backbone, I tell you. Give me everything that you have first. Can I tell you God wants us to give him, give to him first, not last? How often do we find ourselves telling God, sorry God, after, after I've paid all my bills and bought my new clothes and went out to eat and entertained my friends, after all that I have nothing left for you. Sorry God, after I I took the kids to soccer and, 
going to my reading club and hanging out with my friends. I just don't have time for that new ministry. After I meet my own needs, I just have nothing left for you. We may not use those terms, <clears throat> but often that's the way it comes out. God, after I've put myself first, I don't have enough time for you. <clears throat> God wanted the widow to do something radical. Even though she totally thought she didn't have enough, she was to give God <clears throat> her first and only then was she, give it, was she to give it to herself. Listen, God doesn't deserve our leftovers. He always gives us his best. So many times I hear people say, Pastor, after I pay all my bills and all of my other expenses, I just don't have enough to give to God. Really? What happens if we begin, what would happen if we begin to do what the scripture tells us to do, to give God our first and our best instead of our last and our leftovers. What would happen if we stopped tipping God, but instead started tithing our very first and our best to him? How would we feel if our spouses told us, listen, I've spent everything in my account, so I really don't have anything left over to give to you. But I really do love you. I don't have any time in my day because I've spent it all on myself, but you're really important to me. I just don't have enough time for you. Elijah told the widow to first make him something to eat with her very last resources. And that request was for something small, food, but it meant everything to the widow. In verse 14, we see God will often provide in the most common, mundane ways. There are times when God asks us to do something out of this world. Peter walks on the water and Moses walks through the parting of the water and Elijah later on is asked to pray for fire to consume wood that had been soaked with water in just a few days after this story. And there are times when he'll do the same with us. There are times when he'll ask us to start a ministry that no one's been successful in starting before or give a donation that will take great faith because it's certainly not in the bank account now. Maybe share the gospel with that scary person. But most of the time, God asks us to do the same thing over and over with expectant faith. Pray with your kids when they're dealing with that hard homework. Or listen to your spouse after she gets home from work one more time. Or attend yet another church board or committee meeting. Or read that passage over just one more time. Thank you, sister. When the woman put God first, a miracle happened, didn't it? But there were no lightning bolts. There was no neon lights for her. It was just a pretty mundane request. Just give me your last and go cook me 
some, meat, some food. She did what Elijah told her to do. And by doing that one small thing, the scripture says that her food never ran out until it finally started raining again. For the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord. Listen, if you put God first, respond by faith to the minor issues and accept the illogical challenges, then God will provide for your challenge. It may not look miraculous. It may not seem amazing. But God will provide for you in the very quiet ways. I need to continue the story that I began last week. I told you that 14, 15 years ago, I lost a job that I, I really loved. I came home, very odd time in the, on, a, on a morning, uh, in mid-morning, and Darla knew that something was wrong for me to come home at 10, 10.30 in the morning. I came home and I told our family that God was going to take us through a pretty difficult challenge. We were in the middle of uh, this economic challenge that went through the United States back in around 2008. We were going to stand alone. We were going to pray this through. We knew that people were going to watch the Hewlett's and we had just decided that we were going to mirror the holiness of God in all ways possible. We were going to trust God and he was going to get all of the glory. I'd been working as a missions administrator for many years and I absolutely loved missions and still do. For months after that event, I began to apply at multiple missions organizations as their VP or as their CEO. And I often would go through all of the hoops of the interview. They would fly me out to do final interviews. They, I flew to Dallas or Minnesota, all over the United States. And it seemed as if I would get to the very last interview when a decision had to be made, and then maybe the board would go through a hiring freeze of the organization. And I never understood why. One day I began to wonder if God wanted me to go back to pastoring. I absolutely loved preaching and loved discipling people. I, I've already told you about the season when God gave me such a hunger to read his God's word that I began to read the Old Testament two times and the New Testament five times in one year. It was that season that God was just giving me a hunger for his word. And through a series of events, I was invited to interview at a great church in Grandview, Washington, a place that I never ever thought we would live. Grandview was in the middle of one of the deserts of Washington. Most people think Washington's this beautiful, lush state, but really only the western third is lush. The other two-thirds are high desert. Grandview was a small town. It wasn't a large town like we were used to, but we decided 
that if we were going to follow God, we needed to go and just see what God had in front of us. The interview weekend went very well at Grandview. God gave us an amazing love for pastoring and, and loved those people and, and fell in love with the town. I, I, when we left, I could not imagine doing anything else but pastoring again. We accepted their offer and got on the plane and began to head back to Orlando where we lived. And I want you, I want you to know what happened as soon as we left the airport for the next several hours. As we were flying home, we stopped at Salt Lake Airport to change planes and I received an email from a missions agency out of Minnesota that I had interviewed to be their CEO and the HR director said, we'd like for you to come back because we would like for you to become our new CEO. And as soon as she said that, it was like sand in my mouth. I just couldn't imagine not pastoring again. I turned that down and we arrived home two days later. I received a phone call from a Bible translation organization that I had interviewed with. They were inviting me to be the assistant director of Asia for their organization, a position that I would absolutely have loved four days before. But when they talked to me, it was again sand in my mouth. I could not imagine not spending my life behind the pulpit. I had put God first, and he was fulfilling my dreams rather than the plans that I had set logically. Listen, by putting God first, he will fulfill your dreams rather than your logical plans. And I'm confident today that because of those decisions I made as we flew back from Washington State, has brought me to this very pulpit as well. It was because I had decided that I was going to follow God's plan instead of the things that I had logically prepared myself. I want to tell you something. A significant decision was made even this last Tuesday at our board meeting. I presented to our board proposed core values and as we discussed, we recognized that they were significant indicators of who we would become, who we are and who we would become as a church. I'm looking forward to preaching through those six core values because it will tell all of us, every ministry leader, every visitor, every member who we are and what's really important to us. You see, core values are the hills that are worth dying for. They tell us what's important, but listen, they also tell us what's not important. They tell us where we will invest our money, who we will hire, what ministries we will begin, and what ministries need to stop. They will instruct and define everything. One of the core values talks about our commitment to Christ-like discipleship. It talks of our passion to ensure that all of us are developing a healthy and mature relationship with Christ. And because of this commitment, we are excited to make a change and an announcement this morning, a change in our ministry, in our children's ministry. We realize that our children 
when they never spend time in the sanctuary are not being trained as best as they could in their early years. They're not worshiping with their families. They are not learning their theology from our songs and participating in worship and other spiritual disciplines. They don't see dad pull out his wallet and give faithfully. They don't set watching mom open the scripture and learning how to find that reference right beside mom. And we felt that we needed our children in the service more. We're excited to announce that the second Sunday of September, our elementary age kids will now worship with us until the time of the sermon. And then after that, we will gather them together and pray God's blessing on them and send them back to their worship service so that they could get a sermon and worship time for their age. And we believe that this will help them grow and mature in faith so that when they come to the fifth grade and they come to the big church, they will know what it's all about. It's familiar. They will be growing in their faith as well. This is a decision that was based on our core values, who we are. So how can you help? We need more children's workers. We are we are expecting our children's ministry to grow. And if you can give one Sunday a month or maybe one Sunday every two months, we would absolutely love it. You'd still have the privilege of worshiping here most of the service, and then you would go back to help in the nursery or preschool or elementary. We need, we need men and women willing to dedicate their lives to our children. We need people to drive our vans on Thursday nights and Sunday mornings. We have... We have people that desperately need people to come, and, and Dan Golightly is our only driver, and he's desperate for help. Is there an amen, Dan? Dan is a wonderful servant of God, but we'd love it if a, a man or a woman would be willing to help Dan pick up our kids. And can I say we need you to step up financially? Children's and teens ministry costs. But it's an investment worth it, isn't it? Those of, you, those of us who grew up in children's and teens ministry, that's where we learned our theology. That's how we learned who God was and how to participate in ministry. And I would just invite you, if you have not yet made it a practice to give God your very first and your best to him, could I invite you to start that journey? Would you please stand? When we began today, I told you that God was preparing both of these characters for the God-sized challenge that was ahead of them. God specifically told Elijah to go ask a little widow for some food. It sounds like a pretty small request from God, doesn't it? But God was watching to see if he could trust Elijah to do something very specific, like going to a very specific place at a very specific time to talk to a very specific woman and ask for something very specific and small, some food. God saw that Elijah could be trusted with the small ask. Little did Elijah know that right 
after his time with the little widow, God would take him through the spiritual battle of a lifetime by setting him up against 850 false prophets. I wonder what would have happened if he said no to the small challenge God gave him. But do you know what was the challenge ahead for the little widow? The scripture tells us two things that happened when she put God first. First, the jar of flour was never used up until it rained again. And the jug of oil never run dry until it rained again. She had food for her family. That would have been huge. But something else was around the corner. After this story ended, if you'd continue to read, you would find out her only child, her son, died. And she went to the prophet Elijah. Elijah came and lay down on him and the boy raised back to life. I wonder what would have happened if she had responded to the request of just some food. I wonder what would have happened later. Listen, God will always start the faith. God will always start with a small request, a small question, a small challenge. What you don't know yet is that God is checking your faithfulness. He's checking your commitment. He's checking to see if he can trust you with what he would love to come later. He knows something is coming. He knows how he wants to bless you. He knows the huge fiery battle that is just around the corner. And the question will always be, if you don't respond by faith with the small challenges, what gift of God will you miss that's just around the corner?
Did you receive this benediction? Perhaps you have calculated your oil and flour and found it lacking. The challenge ahead is just too great. I pray that in preparation, you will give God the first. You will give God the best and expect God to surprise you with that which is exactly what you need for the God-sized challenge ahead. So now, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, go in peace, for he has already gone before you. You're dismissed.